I invite you to turn with me to the book of James. We are once again in James chapter 2. James chapter 2. The title of the sermon is called Show Me Your Faith. Today we're going to be looking predominantly at verses 18 to 19, but because this is one big unit, let's go ahead and start at verse 14. We'll read to the end of the chapter. So let us give attention to the reading of God's word. James chapter 2, starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messenger and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. This is God's holy and inspired word. May he add his blessing to it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, Lord, for this time we have to get into your word. We thank you even for Pastor James and how he brings us his epistle, how it confronts us, how it rebukes us, how it exhorts us, how it even encourages us to have a life that is built on living faith for Christ. So Lord, help us as we seek to dig into your word, to understand it, to comprehend it, to see Jesus, and to live out of love and gratitude in response to it. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if I told you that I make this amazing meatloaf, it's amazing. I, you know, I put it in the, in the oven. I top it with this extra sauce and everything. And I told you, yeah, I'm an excellent chef. And I make an excellent meatloaf. How would you know? Would you just take my word for it? Would you... Would you say, okay, well, well, sure, yeah, he's an excellent chef, okay. No, you would demand, well, let me taste it. Let me see it. Let me actually see the meatloaf that you make. Let me test for myself whether your claim is true, right? In a very similar way, uh, James here is, is engaging with an opponent here, an imaginary opponent, who would just say, well, my faith is just as important. I, I, I have faith, and he's like, well, Show me. Prove it to me. And what we see is when you cannot cannot prove otherwise faith without works. In the same way, you can't prove that I'm a good chef without eating food, right? So James is going to explain that a little bit more in depth. And in so doing, he's going to exhort us that we need to be those who have faith that is accompanied by good works, Now, just remember where we have been. James has been exhorting us to have living and true faith. And he has been showing throughout the epistle so far what true living faith looks like. And it's meant for us to look at our lives, 
to show different tests. Do we pass the test to see if we have true living faith? In the first one we saw, do we have, how do we endure in trials? How do we face temptations? Do we just give in or do we persevere? How then do you engage with the poor, the needy? How do you receive God's word? Do you let it go in one ear and out the other? And so all these tests are meant to say, do you have true faith? Do you exhibit the fruit of good faith? In chapter 2, he then gets to the sin of partiality. And he really hammered this for, for quite a while, for half this chapter. And he wanted to exhort us to see if you are to do good, if you are to love your neighbor, if you're to be doers of the word, that's going to show in how you love one another. That you don't treat each other partial. And so he brings that out And he wants us to know your works and your deeds matter. You can't just say, I believe, and leave it at that. James wants to confront us. He wants to uh, confront us for those who might think, well, just faith is enough. We just need to believe in good facts, and that's enough in our Christian life. Now, as we said last time, uh, when we properly interpret James, he's not opposed to Paul. We do affirm, as we upheld with the Protestant Reformation, that we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, right? Our right standing before God is not based on our works. It's based on faith in Jesus, right? But as we've been saying, a true faith is never alone. It's always accompanied by the fruit of good works. And so Paul is arguing, here's how you are made right with God, faith alone in Christ. James is saying, I'm not saying here's how you're made right with God, but here's how you know you have true faith. Here's the evidence that we need. And so he's bringing this about, and he's wanting to confront the people who just say, well, I'm justified, so it doesn't matter how I live. He's wanting to say it does matter. You can't just claim to believe and not have a life that shows you believe. He says when you have a faith that doesn't have works accompanied, your faith is dead. So he wants to exhort those who might have complacent faith. He wants to confront those who might be confusing the balance between works and faith, the relationship between that. And he also wants to encourage us who do have faith to keep pressing on. So the big idea is this, because God has saved us to good works, those who have true faith will be shown to have the fruit of good works, which proves their faith is living and not dead. We'll see this in three ways. We'll revisit dead faith, as we saw in verse 14 and 17. We'll then see the impossible challenge followed by demon faith. So let's consider the first point by way of review, dead faith, looking at verse 14 to 17. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? So we're reminded that there are two types of faith. There's a living faith and a dead faith. There is an active faith, an alive faith, or a useless faith. And he wants us to know you need to examine yourself whether you have true living faith. So you're not deceived. So you don't live your life thinking, well, I just believe in certain facts, but then you stand before the judgment throne and you hear the words, depart from me, I never knew you. He wants us to see there's an inconsistency by just saying you believe, but then your life is absent of good works. If you know what God commands in his word and you say you believe, then you're expected to follow with what he says. What good is it if you just have faith, but you don't have works? In other words, what good is it in terms of your salvation? 
What good is it going to be when you stand before God and all you have is faith, but you don't have the fruit of good's works? We're reminded of what Jesus says in Matthew 7. He says, many come to me. And as he's articulating these things, he says, well, those who are separated, they're separated into eternal judgment. The other ones into eternal life. And what is the basis by which he separates them? What's their good deeds? What you did for the least of these, you did for me. It's not because those good deeds merited eternal life, but the good deeds showed the fruit of true faith in Christ. So James is reminding us we need to be those who are obedient to the word of God. Remember in James 1, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. If you just are here, hearing the word, just actively coming to church, but not doing anything, not actively letting it mold and shape your life and trying to live obedient to what it says, if you're just hearing things, he's like, you're just deceiving yourself. That's a dead faith. Faith absent from works cannot save because there's no way to show its genuineness of true faith. James 1, he says, if anyone thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, he deceives his heart. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to keep oneself unstained from the world. So true living faith is made manifest, visible by the good works that it does. He says, without this, can that faith save him? Well, no, it just shows that it's dead faith. It shows that it is dead faith. So he gives the illustration, if we're reminded, verse 15. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So here's one who says he has faith. He, he says he's a Christian. He says he believes in the gospel. But then he has a chance to have his faith be seen. He comes across a brother, one who is also in the faith, and he is needy and poor. And it's very obvious. He's lacking uh, his clothes. He's lacking daily food. And you come to him, and rather than trying to meet his need, you, you give him a religious talk. Well, be warm, be filled, go in peace. And you don't do anything. You don't meet his needs. It's not like he's asking for a lot. These are the best, basic necessities of life. He says, what good is that? What good is your just speech, your talk? The Christian obligation is to help them in their need. John, 1 John 3. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. We also ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does, the, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. He goes, because you truly experienced this great love of Christ and he's shown you grace and met you in your need when you were poor, you too need to show that same kind of love to others. And when you do that, it validates the faith you claim to have. One might profess the right things. One might have the right beliefs. But if it's not accompanied with good deeds, good works, it's showing they don't really believe what they say. And so he adds, so also faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. And so he's saying, you must remember the relationship between faith and works. We're not justified by a right standing before God by our works. 
We don't merit salvation by the things we do, but our true faith that we have is going to be validated. It's going to be visible. It's going to be shown to be real by our good deeds, by the fruit of good works. In our confession, uh, chapter 11, it deals with justification. So in the Confession of Faith, chapter 11, paragraph 2, it says this, Faith, thus resting and receiving on Christ, and his righteousness is the alone instrument of justification. Yet, it is not alone in the person justified, but is ever accompanied with all the other saving graces, and is no dead faith, but works by love. How is faith manifested? How do we show we're truly justified by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Well, it's your works that come out by love. So James gives this illustration. He exhorts us, faith without works is dead. And he wants us to examine ourselves. Are we just claiming to believe in facts? Have we just come to a mere uh, acceptance of an understanding of what we believe the Bible teaches without it really affecting our lives? He says, if so, you need to come to grips. Is your faith living or is it dead? James doesn't end here. He anticipates an objection. And so he continues, which brings us to the next point, the impossible challenge. Look at verse 18. But some will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So James has just hammered, faith without works is dead. And as you read this, you might say, well, this sounds very familiar. This is because he's hammering it in our heads again. James is being a little bit repetitive. And that's necessary. That's good. And sometimes stating something again and again is helpful for us to comprehend and take it to heart. Now, he's saying it in a slightly different way. But really, what he's saying again is faith without works is dead. In fact, he's going to continue doing this a couple more times throughout the chapter. And this is good because we still who wrestle with our sinful flesh, we're forgetful people. We forget good godly truths at times. And we need to be reminded. We need to hear it again and again. And James, he understands the sinful heart. And he wants us to come to grips and really understand how crucial it is to recognize the relationship between faith and works. So it's crucial. It bears repeating again. It's been proven if you hear something over and over, you'll, you'll really own it. You'll really come to understand it. When I was in seminary, I found that when I repeat something seven times in memory, that I memorized it. And so it became a study tool when I need to study for sermons or when I needed to do certain things. If I did it seven times from memory, I'll internalize it enough to be able to take a test. And that really helped me so that when I can go ahead and, and take tests and do those things, I know how much it's going to take for me to study. It had to be seven times kind of hammered in my head. And so James here, in a similar way, is hammering this in our head so we don't forget it. So we understand the relationship between faith and works. He wants to stick it in our hearts so we can maintain the purity of the gospel, so that we can live lives accordingly for the glory of Christ. We're reminded that of his own will he brought us forth, that we should be 
a kind of first fruits for his creatures. This is the whole reason in which he saves us. He doesn't just save us to, and then takes us up to heaven and that's it. We're called to live here for his glory. We're called to bear fruit for him. And so James anticipates the, inject, the, the interjection here. He anticipates someone objecting, and so he enters into what we would call a dialogue, a diatribe. And a diatribe is this common literary technique they used back then. They're using an imaginary opponent to create a dialogue so that he can argue its case. Paul does this several times in Romans. So he's already stated his argument, faith without works is dead, and he anticipates the objection. The hypothetical opponent engaging him. And he says, but some will say, well, you have faith. I have works. In other words, he sees this opponent not neglecting that works are not necessary. They're they're valid. Sure. Okay, James, I'll give you that. Faith without works is dead. There is some importance to works. But you have works. I have faith. In other words, this person is trying to interject to oppose and say, well, well, calm down a little bit, James. Let me give validation to my faith. While I don't have the fruit, the good works that you claim, my faith is still true. And so he's just making an excuse here to validate himself. He said, some will say, you have faith and I have works. This is slightly different, though. So in verse 14, the objector says, I have faith. That's all that matters. Faith alone. I don't need works. That's it. But here, it's saying, okay, I agree. Works are good. They're important, but they're not really for everyone. It's as if the objector's starting to sound spiritual. He wants to sound spiritual once again. And he's kind of treating faith and works as if they're like the fruit of the Spirit. Right? They're spiritual gifts that the Spirit gives. Kind of like how we all have different spiritual gifts within the church. Both are good, but James, you can't really expect anyone to have all the gifts. Right? You can separate faith and works. And so James anticipates this. Well, I'm gifted in having faith. I'm not so gifted in the works. You're, you're more gifted in the works. I'm gifted in the faith. Both are good, but faith is good. Works are good. They can be separated. In other words, get off my back, James. I'm okay. I said I believe. That's enough. He says, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe he lived a perfect life. I believe he died for my sins. He rose again from the dead. That's what matters, right? Just believing. I don't need to line myself up with the Word of God. He's not arguing for the complete absence of works, just for the separation of faith and works. And so he says they're important, but one can have faith, another can have works, both paths lead to the same destination. And so in James's imaginary opponent, James is, is doing this really in a very wise pastoral way because our sinful hearts can be tempted in various ways. On one side, we can be tempted to think, well, we just need works. We just need to, to merit a good standing before God. We just need our good to outweigh our bad. We can just focus on the things we do. I'm I'm a nice person. I'm not so bad as other people. I just need to do works. And then I'm okay. 
But on the other side of the coin, on the other pit you have, you can be tempted to think, well, faith is all that matters. It just matters what I affirm. It just matters what I believe. Who cares if I'm obedient or not? I hold to Jesus died for my sins. But I can live any way I want. So in one sense, you have legalism. The other sense, you have antinomianism. And James is trying to say, look, you cannot separate good works from faith. They go together. But what is underlining here from this opponent is you can separate faith and works, but they don't need to come together. So James's reply here, he replies to this. He wants to show the inconsistency. You can't say this. It doesn't work that way. You can't treat faith in one way and then you're as a, like a spiritual gift and works you have separate from it. He says you can't act like they never come together. You can't treat them separately. Sure, you can say I have faith, but James says, show me. Show me. Show me your faith is real. Show me your faith is real without works. Prove it. Show me your faith is the real deal. He goes, here's a challenge that I have for you. You show me your faith is true without doing anything. Go. I'm waiting. Let me see your faith. His point is, it's impossible. You cannot just show me your faith without doing anything. Don't just tell me what you believe. Show me. Let me observe your life. Let me see what you actually believe. It's one thing to say something. It's another thing to actually show it. So he says, show me your faith. We can say we have faith all we want. We can say we're Christians all we want. We can say we affirm good doctrine. We can affirm certain truths. But what does your life say? So James says, show me. Because without works, you have no way to prove the validity of your faith. You can't have one without the other. As I said, it's like, kind of like a cook who says, I have this great meal then you're like, okay, well, show me. Here's this great chef. I'm going to prove to you he's a great chef without having him cook. What? It's impossible. Or here's this great tennis player, and I'm going to prove he's a great tennis player without him doing any tennis. It doesn't work that way. It's impossible. You can't demonstrate a claim without actually having works that accompany it. And so James is wanting to show us that genuine saving faith is going to be accompanied with the fruit of good works. But faith without works is dead faith. So he says, show me your faith. Show me your faith by your without works. But I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, true faith is seen, is made evident, is visible for all to see by the things it does. James is saying, my good works are going to show you what I believe is true, that what I believe is truly saving. And you might ask him, well, what good works do you have in mind? Well, in context, what is it? Look at verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scriptures, 
you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Right? He's thinking of the law of God. He's thinking of the law as a way to show the evidence of faith. Now, it's not the royal law, in fact, that you have to do this absolutely perfect in order to merit your salvation. No. What is it for the believer? We remember it's so speak, so act as those who are judged under the law of liberty. Right? It's because Christ fulfilled the law for you, because he endured your judgment for your failure to do the law, you then are called to live out of love and gratitude for what he's done because you're going to be judged according to the law of liberty. There's no judgment for you because Christ endured the judgment for you. But you will be judged according to your deeds. You'll be rewarded when your faith is true. And so he says, I'm going to show you my faith by my works, by me obeying the law of God. And it's not because he's mustering up enough strength. It's because the Spirit has actually worked in his life to bring about the ability and desire to do it. Someone with dead faith can't say that. So he goes, I'm going to show you my faith as I seek to be obedient to what God commands. No matter the cost, no matter the sacrifice, my aim is to please him. And you can see true faith through that. Loving God and loving neighbor is the works that we see of true saving faith. So James says, I'll show you my faith by the works of love that I do. Right? Galatians 5. For in Christ there's neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love. So love God, love neighbor sums up the law. And how is faith made manifest? Well, it works through love. It does these good deeds, which are works of love. And so he says, I'm going to show you my faith by the things I do, by my good works, by my works of love. You show me your faith without works. By the way, it's impossible. But I'm going to validate my faith by the good things I do. Works in the believer's life are spirit-wrought fruit. Jesus said it this way, you will know a good tree by its fruit, and a bad tree by its bad fruit. He says, I'm going to show you that I have true faith, that I'm a good tree, by the good fruit that I bear, in accordance with God's law. And this is why he created us. This is why he saves us. Ephesians 2, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are not the means of salvation, but the proof or evidence of true salvation. And so when those are made manifest, when they're visible, it shows your faith is real. He goes, the only way you can show me your faith is by the good works you do. So as you obey God's law, as you love your neighbor as yourself, as you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, as you strive to do that out of love and gratitude for what Christ has done for you by living a perfect life, by dying on the cross, bearing your shame, and as you trust in him fully, you seek to please him. You seek to be obedient, and that's going to show by good works. The only way we can discern True faith from false faith is by examining the life one lives in accordance to God's law. He says, do you bear good works or bad works or no works? Now, this doesn't mean you do it absolutely perfect. 
right? But the fruit of good works is one that strives and desires to do these things. And then when they fail, they're quick to repent, look to Jesus, and then out of love and gratitude, also seek once again to do what pleases the Lord. And Jesus said this as you have the scribes and Pharisees of Jesus' day who were claiming to be those who were teachers of the law, who were claiming to be those who knew God, who had true faith, who wanted to elevate themselves before the people as the spiritual leaders of the day. Jesus would say in Matthew 7, you'll recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Thus you'll recognize them by their fruits. So James is saying, I'm going to show you by my fruits. Dead faith can't spring good food. Dead faith can't bring about good works. And on the flip side, you cannot have true good works if you have dead faith. William Hendrickson says this, James wants to see what kind of faith the speaker possesses. If faith is not rooted in a believing heart, then that faith amounts to nothing more than empty words. It's worthless. Its opposite is true faith, which is inseparably joined to the deeds of love. Faith and works are inseparable. Just as a motor produces power because the electrical current flows into it, so a Christian produces good deeds because true faith empowers him. So James is saying, let me see your output. Let me see your faith, and what I see is either the lack thereof shows dead faith, or the proof thereof shows true faith. So he goes, you have faith, show me. Show me your fruit. And it's impossible without works to prove it. So his point is you cannot, you cannot make a separation between faith and works. You need to keep those two together. So show me your faith apart from your works. I will show you my faith by my works. But James anticipates another objection. He doesn't just stop there. And so it brings us to the last point, demon faith. James has just hammered, show me your faith without works. How would you respond when someone tells you that? How would you prove your faith is real without works? And you can imagine maybe the dialogue continuing. What do you mean, show me your faith, James? Faith is invisible. I I can't just show you. I can't pull it out of my pocket and say, here you go, my faith. So maybe the objector is saying, okay, well, you know, I can't show you my faith, but let me tell you about my faith. Let me tell you what I believe. Let me tell you what I hold to. And so James anticipates this, and he recognizes this is just more talk. You're just trying to validate your claim You're trying to sound orthodox and godly. Okay, James, you want me to show you my faith? Let me show you what I believe. God is one. Every good Jew, that was was what they held to. That was their confession of faith. That was called the Shema, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. See, James, I believe, therefore my faith is real. I hold to the same things we're commanded to hold because that's what the Bible teaches And every good Jew back then, that's what they have to hold to. So God's one. 
James anticipates this. You're going to attempt to show your faith by telling me what you believe. But that's not enough. Verse 19, oh, you believe God is one. Hmm. Very good. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. You can think mic drop right there. Like, wow, James, that's, that's pretty harsh. You, you can anticipate kind of the sarcasm. You can, you can kind of read that in and, and just speaking, you believe God is one? Wow, excellent. That, that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Good for you. Even the demons believe. If you don't have faith accompanied with good works, that's just as good as demon faith. James is being blunt. He, he's not holding any punches. He's saying it how it is. And he's going to want to show you later on, and he says if you hold to this, if you hold to this distorting the balance between works and faith, if you, you blunder that all together, then you're a fool. That's, that's pretty harsh, James. Well, James wants us to see the seriousness of messing up this balance here, this relationship between faith and works, because the gospel depends on it. And he wants us to take it seriously, so he acts very firmly, but we're reminded it's done out of love. What does Pastor James do throughout all of the epistle? He's reminding us, and he says, my brothers, my brothers, it's to remind us of his love. But here he gets firm, and he's willing to correct and not hold any punches and just say it how it is, because it's serious. We would do well to listen. He's exhibiting pastoral qualities you find in Titus 2, which we read. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine, but also rebuke those who contradict it. He's willing to rebuke those and call them out on their heresy. So here, in his own unique way, he's rebuking this wrong way of thinking. And he's, he's not holding any punches. Sure, it's good you have good doctrine. It's good you hold to certain things. But if you don't have good works in that, you're a fool. Faith isn't enough with just believing facts if it doesn't result in a transformed life. A life must be accompanied by the evidence of good works if you want to have true, living, active, saving faith. If you don't have that, it's nothing more than demon faith, and that can't save you. This is meant to shut their mouth so they can be humbled and examine their lives. He goes, let's compare your faith with what the demons called faith. Let's look at these two. Okay, you say you believe in God. God is one. What do the demons say? They believe God is one. Corporate needs you to find the difference between these two pictures. They're the same thing. You're believing in facts. They're believing in facts. It's demon faith. But what do they do? They don't love God. They don't have good doctrine. Or they have good doctrine, but they don't have saving faith. Satan says the same thing about God that you are. God is one. They have good doctrine. They know who God is. They know the scriptures. In fact, they probably have better doctrine than you. But their belief doesn't transform their lives. Their beliefs in who God is and their understanding of doctrine 
doesn't result in love and gratitude for him and obedience. They have good doctrine, but they don't share in communion with God or trust in him. They believe in facts, but that's not enough. Mere intellectual assent isn't going to cut it. Believing in facts is not enough. He says their belief, notice what their belief produces. Their belief in who God is and what his word says, they understand that. What does that cause them to do? That causes them to shudder. But you, you hear God's word, you believe God is one, and that provokes you to do nothing. He says, at least they shudder. At least they know their destruction's coming to an end. He goes, the difference between your faith and the demon's faith is they actually have better faith than you. They have doctrinal orthodoxy, but that alone isn't going to save you. It doesn't save the demons. As you look at the Gospels, you see this demonic activity that is happening. And as Jesus' ministry is, is continuing to go forth, the demonic activity enhances, and you start to see some engagement, and you get to understand what do they believe. Matthew 8. Matthew 8, 28, we're reminded of uh, the scene of the demoniac. Two demons come out and meet Jesus, coming out of the tombs so fierce no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They have pretty good theology if you just evaluate that statement. They know Jesus is the Son of God. They profess it even before any of the disciples do. They understand that God will judge him. They believe in a literal hell, unlike many preachers today. They believe there's an appointed time in which God will judge them and also the world. They have good doctrine. Jude tells us a little bit about these demons. These were angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. He has kept them in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. They know their end is sure. They understand there's a point in time that he is the son of God. They see Jesus and they're thinking, this isn't the time. What have you to do now, Jesus? The demons believe who Jesus is. They believe God is one. But they shudder in fear. He says, how can you claim to believe in the right things about God, not have a faith that actually does anything to you? At least demon faith makes them shudder. He goes, they give knowledge to God. They affirm the facts. They believe in what the Bible has to say. They can even quote it. But they don't have saving faith. They don't bear the fruit of true saving faith. And we all know like, people like this who say they're Christians, who say, I hold to the Bible, I believe Jesus died for my sins, but then you look at their life and you're like, that looks like the world. One commentator says this about such people. They accept the biblical diagnosis of the human condition. They understand how Jesus' life, death, and resurrection remedy their estrangement from God. They go to church from time to time. They like to read and talk about spiritual things. They know the central teachings of the Christian faith. They're pleasant folks. They seem to live decent lives. Though they may indulge in a vice or two, 
When conversation turns to Jesus or what happens after death, they might sound like believers. They adhere to orthodox doctrine, evangelical theology, yet there's nothing distinctly Christian about their behavior. They may be decent neighbors, may perform little community service here and there, but there is no real self-sacrifice, no costly obedience, no taking up the cross to follow him, no good deed that goes against their grain, nothing that challenges their well-designed life. James says, what kind of faith is that? If it doesn't bear the fruit of good works, it's demon faith, it's lukewarm faith, it's good for nothing, it's useless. This is hard. This is, this is a rebuke that James is giving for those who think you can have merely faith not accompanied by good works. If you're a Christian, but you just live like the rest of the world, James wants you to really evaluate yourself. Do you have saving faith? What good is it? Can that faith save you? And he says, if you don't have faith that is working by love, right, that's how your faith is made manifest, then the faith you claim to have is useless. It's demon faith. It's dead. So we must take this to heart. It's possible to have knowledge of the Christian faith, to know your Bible, to believe in mere knowledge of facts, and not have true saving faith. It's possible to have the right doctrine, but show no proof of saving faith. You can profess the right things, but that's not good enough if it doesn't lead to a transformed life. It's possible to have sound theology, but be lost. Think of Agrippa. What did he do? He believed in the prophets but he made no commitment to God. Jesus would say, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Many people today are deceived into thinking that they have true saving faith, that they have the get-out-of-jail-free card because they believe Jesus died for their sins, because they at one time gave some assent and proclamation to the gospel, Maybe because they signed a card, walked an aisle, whatever, but their lives remain unchanged. James would say that's not enough. Saving faith is not mere intellectual assent. It involves a turning from your old life to a new life. You have died to your old self and you're called to walk in newness of life because the Spirit dwells in you, because you've been transformed, because you've been given a new heart. That's what true faith makes itself evident by. And he says, if good, weight, good works are not evidence in your life, for one you profess, that's dead faith, demon faith, useless. So is your faith working? How do you know you have genuine saving faith? Paul tells us, Peter does too, examine yourselves to see whether you are truly in the faith. So this is something we need to hear. We need to be constantly looking at ourselves and looking at our lives and seeing, are we bearing fruit for the Lord? We need to not just claim to believe certain facts, to believe certain things, to not just have heady knowledge to win arguments, but it needs to actually affect our lives. You've heard the saying, orthodoxy should produce orthopraxy. In other words, a life that is doing things. And we as Reformed Baptists, we like to pride ourselves on good doctrine. 
right? We study the confession of faith. We go through it during Sunday school. If you want to learn more about that, come to Sunday school. So as you see the confession, it thoroughly articulates what we believe. In fact, we have a whole chapter dedicated to the doctrine of God. We can say a lot more than what James's opponent says. We can say a lot more than simply God is one. Listen to some of the things we say in chapter 2. The Lord our God is but one only living and true God, whose substance is and of himself, infinite in being and perfection, whose essence cannot be comprehended by any but himself, most pure spirit, inv invisible without body parts or passions, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach, who is immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, every way infinite, most holy, most wise, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory. And that's just half of that paragraph. We can say a lot more than what they can say about God is one. We can articulate the truths of the gospel. We can understand justification by grace alone and, and sanctification, articulate great doctrines and understand these truths that the Bible proclaims. But what good is it if it doesn't lead to a transformed life? We need to be careful that to make sure what we say we believe, what we hold to actually impacts our heart actually transforms our life, actually produces evidence for us that shows we're loving God and loving neighbor. We don't do it perfectly, but that should be what we're striving to do. So can your faith save you? James wants to challenge us, and this is good, to realize, and maybe you don't, you're here and you realize, I don't have the true saving faith. I believe facts. I thought that was good enough, but my life doesn't live in accord with it. It's not consistent with what the Word of God says. Well, then it's good that you're here because the word of God is what is how God brings about true saving faith. The word of God proclaimed is the word of Christ. And so as you're hearing the word of God, it should convict you. So call out to God. Call him to give you saving faith. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus. And then out of love and gratitude for what you've been given, you will strive to do these things. For us who do have faith, this should challenge us to strive to evaluate our faith and to motivate us to, to examine so we're not deceived. It should motivate us all the more as we evaluate our lives to see the evidence of the Spirit working fruit in our lives. This should give assurance, not doubt. This should give assurance. So it's good to challenge ourselves. Have you ever challenged yourself in this regard? Do you ever ask, is my faith really saving? This shouldn't just be concerned for ourselves, but also our children. It's one thing to know the right answers, but do they really love Jesus? To not just presume, but to actually examine, to actually confront. This is biblical, this is right, this is what James is doing for us today. And the worst tragedy imaginable is to live your life thinking you have faith, only to have it exposed on the last day, to hear those words from our Savior, I never knew you, depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Believing facts is not enough. Intellectual knowledge and assent is not merely enough. We must fully trust 
what we believe, what we say we believe, we must trust with all our hearts, and that will be shown through the fruit of good works. So this should encourage us, should exhort us to strive for loving good deeds, and it should encourage us to proclaim the good news of the gospel accurately, that we are justified by grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone, but that faith is never alone. It will be accompanied by good works. And you can think of the masses of, of all the people who've heard that, who signed the aisle and all that, who are now living in complete contradiction to the word of God. If we properly proclaim the gospel accurately, and here's what it means, and then disciples, disciple them, that's what it means. That's the Great Commission, to encourage people to produce good works for the glory of Christ. So because God has saved us to good works, those who have true faith will be shown by the fruit of good works, which proves their faith is living and not dead. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the book of James, as it is an uncomfortable book. But Lord, it is truly comfortable when we recognize it for what it is. It is the word of God. Lord, we pray that we can live lives in accordance to what your word says by the power of your spirit. We thank you, Lord, for us who do believe that have true faith, that you would further grow that faith for a further dependence on you. If there are any be here who do not truly believe, who only have maybe believed in intellectual facts up to this point, we pray today would be the day of salvation. You would soften hard hearts, that you would have them embrace Jesus with their whole lives, and that that would overflow in love and good deeds. So Lord, we pray as we gather here as a body that we can be encouraged and strengthened and nourished through your word and all the more motivated because of what Christ has done for us to love you in good deeds. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.